0: Hi everyone, and welcome to another episode of Go Out and Talk to Strangers. I'm Adi, the Nomad Architect, and this is the place where I'm sharing with you ideas and inspiration, hosting founders, entrepreneurs, and extremely talented people to share their experience with us. And today we have Matt. Hi Matt.
1: Hi Adi. Thanks for having me today.
0: Sure, thank you for coming! Um, Matt is the Head of Impact and Innovation at Conscious Co-Living, which is a design consultancy based in London, UK. He was one of the founding team members of co and we are very, very lucky to have him on the show. Today we're going to talk about his journey, placemaking, co-living and impact. So how are you today, Matt?
1: Yeah, doing pretty well. I'm uh, currently in the French countryside near Lyon. Mm-hmm. So life is good here, and uh, I'm actually headed to Briançon, which is in the Alps, to a co-living space called Cloud Citadel, which is a kind of like rural co-living space.
0: Oh, wow. Fun. Very cool. And how long are you going to spend there?
1: Uh, just a week, and it's it's not far from the mountains, so they're quite sportsy, and uh, we're going to go on a few hikes in the, in the next week, maybe do some rock climbing and... Uh, yeah, it's a new community, so I'm really excited to head there and, and test it out.
0: Wow, sounds incredible! So you grew up in New Jersey, right?
1: Yeah, that's right. So I grew up in New Jersey, about half an hour from New York, really in the suburbs of New York. Uh, it was really cool suburb to grow up in. Quite diverse. Uh, very, very close access to the city and all the dynamic energy of, of, of New York and. Yeah, the culture as well and a lot of uh, kind of artsy individuals living in the suburb where i was at
0: so. mm-hmm. and what made you move to europe
1: so yeah so after new jersey i studied a bit in colorado in, in boulder mm-hmm. in the, in the which is in the rocky mountains in the midwest of the us and then after that i actually did a bit of traveling in peru for like six months and My whole life I grew up coming to France because I'm French-American, so Mm -hmm. my mother's French and my dad is American, and I really wanted to live in Europe at some point in my life and and, uh, maybe study in Europe, so that's why I came to France first was to study my master's program, uh, which I did in in Saint-Étienne, which is near Lyon, and I studied urban sociology there.
0: Would you say that this is one of the things that led you into the world of co-living?
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So the the master's was really focused on urban alternatives or alternatives to city making. So a lot of those were su- sustainable alternatives as well mm-hmm. and quite focused on citizen participation and community development within uh, an urban planning and, an, and a city making approach. Um, so co-living fit kind of nicely into that. And, uh, yeah, like I said, I was always interested in this, like community building, community development approach to city making. So co-living is an example of that and, uh, kind of fit nicely or fell nicely into my lap, uh, the world of co-living mm-hmm. via a mutual contact, a mutual friend. And, and, uh, that's when I started working for co-live was after my master's program.
0: Sounds like you were... At the right place and the right time. Because this world is just getting more and more developed.
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely.
0: Um, So we were also talking about a placemaking project uh, in New Zealand. I'm fascinated. I would love to hear more about it. But I think maybe we need to tell our listeners a little bit about placemaking. Because not everybody knows exactly what it is. So how would you define it?
1: Sure. Um, So placemaking, it has a bunch of different names. But it's... uh, quite a grassroots, like, bottom-up city-making approach is how you can define it. And some other mm-hmm. words or some other kind of phrases to use for placemaking is also tactical urbanism or DIY urbanism. So it's, it's, it's very kind of – it's it's low-cost. It's uh, quite easily implementable, but it has a sort of mm-hmm. quite a high impact and a quite a local impact as well. Um, so usually it involves maybe the local municipality joining up with an architecture collective and some citizen groups to create a public space, for example, or to redesign a public space. Mm-hmm. So that, that's a quite a classic example of, of placemaking or of, of tactical urbanism is a lot of like public space regeneration. and and redefining what that looks like through participative workshop methods, for example.
0: Can you share about the project?
1: Yeah, so uh, during my master's, we had a six-month internship program that was acquired, and I found an internship in New Zealand in Christchurch, which is a post-disaster city in the South Island of New Zealand. So Christchurch had a few earthquakes in 2010 and 2011, and it had a pretty big impact on the central city and and around the central city as well. So since then, the last 10 10 years or so, the the whole city has been in redevelopment. There's a whole kind of urban regeneration program as well that was created by the, the national government, but also the local municipality. And one of the approaches that they took was going quite strongly with this placemaking approach and and really getting local artists, local creatives, local architects to help redesign the the central city and and specifically like the public spaces in the central Mm city. So it was, it was a way for community groups to kind of take an identity or or, or recreate an identity for the central city. And, And they really had like a blank slate, um, to, to recreate this identity, which is quite cool. and And the organization I worked for while in Christchurch was an organization called Life in Vacant Spaces. Mm-hmm. And they basically acted as a mediator between property owners and these community groups or artists or creatives that wanted to, to create new public spaces. So they, they they came up with these legal contracts between the property owners to rent their the, those lo- locations and those properties to community groups for very like cheap or, or for free. Mm-hmm. And life in vacant spaces, they were in charge of all of the legal and administrative know how and, and processes. So they made it really easy for these organizations to to plug in their, their kind of talent and their knowledge and their creations into the spaces of these property owners. Um, and yeah, it was, it was part of this wider ecosystem in Christchurch uh, with mm-hmm. other organizations that were doing very similar projects. One that's quite well known is called Gap Filler, which was kind of like a sister organization of Life in Vacant Spaces. And they, they were the ones doing a lot of these like creative, quirky, placemaking projects. Um, one of them was called the dance mat where they took a big dance platform or they created this like dance platform, a kind of like a stage mm-hmm. almost, in in a public space, and they added a laundry, and in the laundry there was in the laundry machine there was a there was a stereo, there was a speaker, and then they had like uh, four speakers on the on each side of the dance platform as well, and you were able to go there and just like put 50, 50 cents into the laundry machine, and play music for about 10 minutes uh, or so. I forget the exact amount, but, um, so it became this like really cool public space, uh, dance, dance rehearsal space, you know? Um, and you can go with friends, you could go with family, you could go for actually like dance, Mm -hmm. uh, recitals or or rehearsals. There was quite a lot of groups that were doing that. And that was just like a really inspiring example of, of this kind of placemaking, um, Another one that they did was this big video game that they they had a big projector and they had like a massive joystick. Um, so it was almost like a sort of human-sized video game <laughs> and they created the video game with some local video game designers and yeah, they, they did the whole like projections and everything themselves. So another really cool example of this and, and since then they've done tons of... Uh, really cool quirky projects
0: it's so playful i think one of the biggest frustrations uh, around design and urban design especially that usually takes years before you see something change and then placemaking get this fresh innovative playful attitude that is just like you know what let's do something really cool and it's almost like pop-up or temporary most of the time how long did this project last let's say
1: yeah, yeah. so um, when when defining placemaking, those are actually also other ways to explain it is like pop-up urbanism or temporary urbanism. Um, so yeah, th- these are meant to be like temporary, but it's also meant to show how you can use these spaces for longer term, you know, mm-hmm. or like how you can adapt them into longer term solutions. Um, so actually a lot of municipalities are really into like this placemaking nowadays, mm-hmm. Um more recently, I, I've been living in France, so Paris is is taking this approach quite seriously, and especially after COVID as well, like they're 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 looking into it very mm-hmm. seriously as a approach to recreate the city. And even before then, they they um, had a bunch of public space like uh, call for proposals, where mm-hmm. they invited local architects and local citizen groups and uh, like participative placemaking groups to redesign the the seven main plazas in in paris Mm -hmm. so like bestie Nation, ponteon which are like pretty historic plazas in paris and they basically wanted to get rid of all the car parks and then redesign these plazas to make them more pedestrian friendly more playful more uh Mm -hmm. more green as well
0: that's incredible yeah I, i really wish to see more example of this you can see that the approach is changing. The whole mindset is changing to have less cars in the city, to have more walkable cities. And yeah, I think this is brilliant. And also I think one of the highest values of this kind of actions, like pop-up urbanism, as you call it, is the sense of belonging because it comes bottom up and then everyone in the neighborhood feels like, oh, you know, I was part of this project. I'm also a creator.
1: Yeah, exactly. That's that's what I was saying as well. Like in Christchurch, it was really about... Recreating an identity within within the city, mm-hmm. um, and and having like that empowerment and, and being engaged in that process as well.
0: Mm-hmm. But I bet it's not easy all the time working with so many people. No, no, and and
1: and I say this, but there's also a lot of barriers. Like there's also a lot of um, limitations that come from the national government mm-hmm. or that come from the local municipality as well.
0: Can you share a challenge you had to to overcome? Um,
1: yes, yeah, so so in Christchurch, um, there was there was a lot of actors involved in the in the urban regeneration after the earthquakes, mm-hmm. and there was like a national plan. There was like a national uh, disaster recovery plan, and that plan was quite like top up or, or, or top down. Mm-hmm. And it was all about like creating big stadiums and big convention centers in the in the central city. It was just a bit ill placed. Um, so it was a bit of a contrast with these like very localized projects that were actually having a lot of impact and that were actually coming from the the residents themselves or the or the needs and the wants of the residents themselves. And yeah, it was. It was. I think the challenge there was. Not knowing how long this kind of placemaking initiatives would, would last and, and, and whether they, they would continue to have an impact on the long term and whether the city would continue to be built in this way mm-hmm. or whether it would just kind of go back to normal after they were used, you know, um, or, or after they were being used for, the, for, the, for a, a shorter term recovery plan. And then it would just kind of go back to these larger scale international mm-hmm. call for proposals and where it's just not very rooted in the, in the local history and the local needs and challenges yeah um so yeah they're they now now looking back like or, or keeping a close eye on Christchurch and with with colleagues that I had there uh there's there's a bit of both going on at, at the moment so those projects are still quite rooted into the whole urban regeneration program but there's also a bit of that kind of like more traditional urbanism. Yeah.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. I guess you have to have a short-term and a long-term plan and ideally you will mix them up in a way that harmonize each other. Yeah. Yeah. We talked about uh, an open source framework you're working on for coloring. And I think the words open source is really something special here. Um, So why don't you tell us a little bit about that?
1: Sure. Sure. Uh, So with Conscious Co-Living, which is the consultancy you mentioned earlier on that is focused on mostly spatial and experience design for, for co-living developers and operators. And we have like mm-hmm. this very impact-driven approach and, and sustainability approach. We're all about embedding community well-being and sustainability into co-living products, uh, experiences, and, and, and actual the actual spatial design. And yeah, part of that is also creating different frameworks or standards for the co-living sector that we want to be, we want, we want them to make them industry-wide standards and accessible for, for the, whole, the whole sector. Uh, so so we, we have a manifesto called the Conscious Co-living Manifesto, mm-hmm. which is already an open source standard or an open source framework that you can use and we recently updated it in the beginning of this year to include a toolkit of sorts where you have a bunch of different resources for community for enhancing well-being for fostering sustainability as well or ensuring sustainability and that you can download online on our website and and it's already this like open source approach uh we're we're creating a a a toolkit as well like a a community facilitation toolkit Mm -hmm. which is also we're also going to make that open source and yeah that the reason for that is because we feel that community is really the root of of co-living and it's really like the secret sauce of co-living but we feel that it's also something that's like really difficult to maintain and to create Mm -hmm. so we just wanted to give our kind of insights in our, in our perspective on that. Um, and, and the same goes for this impact framework. So the impact framework will consist of different indicators and different frameworks for co-living operators to be able to Im- embed impact into their, into their design, into the experience, but also into their business metrics and, and into their business success metrics.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, so for us, it's really about creating an accountability for, for residents, for local, local neighbors, for uh, municipalities as well, like alignment with municipalities and local city plans uh, and and being able to prove and and to, to show the impact that co-living could have. Um, So, so, so yeah, for us, it's really about like ensuring the potential of co-living in a way. And, And, and in order to do that, we, we wanted to, Make it accessible to the whole sector, and and also make it become some kind of industry standard in a way.
0: Yeah, I think it's I think it's really beautiful, and just the way that you described it right now, it's something uh, that is very much needed. And one of the um, I think the most interesting thing about it is you're not only talking about impact, but you're talking about the way to measure it, because it's so hard to define. Like everybody wants to have an impact, but then what? How do you know? Exactly, how impactful is your project?
1: Yeah, so so, it's there's a fine line with measuring impact. Uh, it can it can easily become what you call like impact washing or greenwashing.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, it can e- e- easily become a branding initiative and a marketing initiative more than a, more than a kind of like authentic business strategy. So the the first step is that like you really need to have buy in from all stakeholders. Including, like the CEO and investors, and a lot of the top management. So that's like one of the first keys to to measuring impact, and and having having all those different departments involved, have having their buy in, so that they can all champion the impact internally. Um, so that that's that's a bit difficult, especially when you have like existing. Business culture and existing KPIs, and transitioning into more impact-driven KPIs can be a bit of a challenge, just because of the time and resource it requires, and maybe additional staff, maybe an additional team, for yeah. example. Just a
0: second, uh, KPI.
1: Um, oh, sorry, KPI. Uh, key key performance indicator. Sorry, I had a blank there. Yeah.
0: Yes okay no no this is important for everyone yep um okay so let's talk about a real example um, about impact that you can measure
1: yeah so for example with with the framework that we're creating mm-hmm. we are you basing it off of our existing manifesto so around the aspects of community well-being and sustainability and these are all things that you can measure so we're we're not necessarily recreating the, the wheel, but we're using frameworks that exist already. And for example, within sustainability, there are, there are a ton of different building certifications for sustainability. Uh, there, there, there's one called LEED, L-E-E-D. There's one called BREEAM as well. Uh, there's one called WELL, uh, the WELL standard, which is a very interesting one. It really looks into resident well-being and air quality, light quality, sound quality, Sleep quality, all these aspects of of, of resident well-being or like tenant well-being if it's in an office, for example. Mm -hmm. So these these are all have their specific indicators and they're kind of like check boxes in a way.
0: But do you trust them, Matt? Do you trust those indicators? I want to share a, a personal story. So when I was an architecture student, I was really into sustainable design as I am now. And then I found out about LEED and I f- and then I found out there is the first building in Israel that got the lead gold. Uh, was it like the highest one? I was really busy, obviously, being an architecture student. You don't sleep for like five years. <laughs> and I managed to find a day to drive up north to Haifa in Israel and to see the building. And I was really excited to go in. But then when I walked in, it was an office building, and it looked like a normal building. There was nothing special about it. I couldn't tell if I didn't know. I couldn't tell that it actually was um, a green building or have any kind of like advanced technologies. It was unpleasant as all office buildings are, you know, like the floors and lights and just not inviting. So then it made me question this kind of standards. Well, if, if I can't feel it in my own well-being as a person, what does it mean? You know the impact is not only in the bottom line yeah the impact also should be about like the atmosphere and the way that building feels what do you think
1: i i totally agree i totally agree and it's and it's a bit of a like tricky or it's a bit of a fine line with these certifications um, some of them or a lot of them are actually like planning requirements mm-hmm. so op, like developers will just sort of tick the boxes that they have to in order to get planning yeah and they don't necessarily go above and beyond what they what they need to do. Um, and that's quite classic and then that that might lead to this kind of stale like sustainable building. Um, th- there's also the the issue of, yeah, you can you can sort of take all those boxes and have the ventilation or whatever. Um, but you may not have the, the right staff to, to actually maintain all the sustainability elements. Yeah. Uh, so the operations of the building is also really important. And a lot of the time that gets, that gets lost. Uh, and, and a classic example is in, in South London, it's a project called Bed Zed. And it was, it was created by the the Peabody Institute, which is like a social housing organization in, in London, in the UK. And it was like really the state of the art sustainable kind of co-housing community. And in the end, a lot of the, the sustainability features got lost because there was nobody that was really trained to maintain them and operate them.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: But yeah. I, I think, I think they like the well standard. I do, I do have quite a bit of uh, trust in the well standard. I find it really interesting. And, it, and I think it goes a bit beyond the Briam and lead. Um, and I know that like, I'm, I'm, or I'm pretty sure Briam lead well. They they do work a bit together to see how to sort of merge a bit of their 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 certifications and and learn from one another.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: But yeah, so so our architect from in Conscious Co Living is actually becoming lead lead or well well certified, and we we do use it as a as an approach, you know, um, with with Conscious Co Living. So so th- there's that one. There's there's a few other more. I guess accessible frameworks. There's one called One Planet Living, which is quite interesting, and it's it's a mix of like uh, well with with some other indicators as that are quite interesting, and it's a bit more open source, so you don't necessarily have to pay to use it, um, but you 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 just have to kind of be assessed by the One Planet Living organization. Interesting. Yeah, I think I think there's some good elements of the of all these certifications, uh, but not if you're just trying to like take the boxes and and yeah, get yeah. planning approval for your for your building. You know, I think you I think you I think you do need to go above and beyond what is required.
0: Right. You know, it's good that now at least nowadays we have the standard, and then we can keep improving it. That, that's yeah, that's the way, sure. like, at <laughs> least we have this one. So I'd say this is about sustainability. How do you measure well-being?
1: Yeah, so well-being and community are obviously a lot more nuanced, uh, a lot more tricky to, to measure. It kind of gets into psychology even, and like emotional psychology a little bit.
0: Yeah, let's dig into this.
1: The, <laughs> this yeah. is,
0: it's really interesting.
1: Uh, so, so there are some, like, well-being measurement frameworks that exist already, and mm-hmm. we, we've been studying them for quite some time. Uh, there's one called the WEMWBS. I think it's the War, Warwick and Edinburgh Well-Being Measurement Survey, mm-hmm. and it looks at different types of well-being, so, so physical, emotional well-being, um, what they call... Eudemonic well-being, which is, I guess, more of a holistic well-being approach, really looking at the, those different elements, and it's 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 a bit tricky because these are still based on like survey methods. So mm-hmm. you are you are sending out surveys. It's usually on like a one to five rating scale, where you ask people, um, in the last week, I I feel more fulfilled or in the last week i feel like i feel connected to others or in the last week my energy levels have been high these are the kind of survey questions that they ask um but this is also this is always really tricky when you're doing survey and like qualitative or quantitative data because there's always this survey bias from the from the interviewee or from the respondee yeah and they they can they can easily easily just say oh I want to fill out the survey so I'm just going to do it quickly and, and, and not necessarily like fill it out intentionally but also be be a bit biased like oh I don't want I don't want my housing provider to think that I'm I'm not well mm-hmm. you know it's there's 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 a whole bunch of elements in there yeah is it anonymous
0: it's,
1: it's usually yeah it's it's usually anonymous for sure
0: mm-hmm. okay at least that.
1: Yeah, yeah, there's a lot of like GDPR things that go into these surveys as well. And
0: mm-hmm.
1: uh, traditionally, or like typically in co-living spaces, there are already quite a bit of customer surveys, uh, customer satisfaction surveys that look into things like uh, what you call NPS, Net Promoter Score. So that's really looking into brand mm-hmm. loyalty and looking into whether people are detractors or promoters of a brand. It's used in a variety of sectors, but Mm -hmm. it's used quite quite a lot in co-living as well. Um so here you're already getting an element of not necessarily well being but of like community in a way, of understanding how they're responding to community events or the community vibe or even the, the, the team management or like the team dynamics or the dynamics between the team and the and the residents and whether or not the operations are being run smoothly or whether or not things are clean, that 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 kind of stuff. So so you can already get a bit of an element of yeah, like the, the community indicators in a way, or at least the, the operational indicators.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um but but we're we're trying to break down this community and these well being indicators even further. So for community we're looking into like the individuals feeling of community, um, the, the wider community level as well like within the building and then the how the, that community interacts with the local community as well. Um, so you're looking into like economic impacts of of the wider community or things like skill sharing so sharing, sharing different types of capital as well, human capital, cultural capital yeah. Uh, there's 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 a whole bunch of uh, what you call what you can call community capitals, um, which go beyond just kind of economic or financial capital, and 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 this is a way that you can measure the impact of the co living community on the wider community as well, is is by looking at how they contribute to these different community capitals, mm-hmm. um, and and in terms of well being, we're 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 also looking at at it in a similar level. Of like the individual well-being, but also the community-wide well-being, and looking at those different types of well-being that I was talking about, like the physical or the or the emotional well-being.
0: That's great. I really connect with what you said about impacting the local economy and creating connections within within the wider community, because a lot of the time in co-living. Um, you have this feeling of a little bit like bubbles where it's detached from its environment. And it's such a shame because to have some sort of events of Skillshare, masterminds, um, just being able to share the knowledge with people around you is, uh, yeah, and also the economical impact. So let's say um, somebody has a project or is about to start a project and I call it project and he or she would like to have an impact what would you advise them i know it's like really big and it's something you probably do over a few months but if you had to give them one advice uh to make it a a impactful project what would it be
1: so so impactful like overall or or on mostly on the neighborhood or on the local community
0: let's go with the neighborhood factor i like this one yeah Yeah, i think it's overlooked a lot of the time
1: there's a whole bunch of different ways to engage with the neighborhood even before opening the space. And if you're doing like a ground up development of the co-living project, or even some kind of renovation of an existing building, then the first thing you could do is, is engage with local neighbors and engage with local community groups, cafes, resident associations, cultural centers, you know, you can you can do uh, a whole bunch of stakeholder mapping. What is what is what you call it? You you map out the different stakeholders in the local neighborhood, mm-hmm. and you can you can reach out to them and see how they can be involved in this design process or in the development process. So at different stages within the development process, you can engage with these local stakeholders to different degrees. Um, they, they might not be involved in, in constructing the space for example but they can be involved in, in helping design the space and co-designing the space yeah and and a lot of the time it's more of a, like when when you do consultation with local with local stakeholders it's more of a kind of informing phase or it's more of an informing approach which is not a very strong level of engagement. Because it's saying this is what we've done, um, we're sh- we're showing you the design plans, but you don't really have a say on what on what we've done. You know, it's it's just it's kind of classic consultation approach, um, which you can go a bit beyond that, and and you can also really co-create the space or co-design the space with local stakeholders based on their on their local needs, based on the needs and challenges. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you're a co-living space and you're you're going to have a bunch of amenities and your uh, amenity spaces open to the public, it's best not to cre- recreate a cultural center that exists across the street, you know. Yeah. So you, so you really want to create a something that is that is needed within the local economy within the local neighborhood. Um, and yeah, there, there's there's a bunch of different uh, like participation uh, or engagement levels. And and one of them is the classic. It's from the '60s or '70s. It's called the Armstein Ladder of Participation, and it's a, it's a it's a ladder that goes from this kind of informing approach to yeah, like this co-creation approach, um, mm-hmm. and, and and everything between. So so there's that one, and then there's one called uh, the IAP squared. It's the International Association for Participation, I believe, something like that. And they also have a participation s- sort of spectrum. And, and it's, a, it's, a, it's a great tool to use when you're thinking about how you want to engage with local communities. Um, so that, that, for me, would be the first step, is, is getting local communities involved in the design and in, in the development phases before opening. And mm-hmm. then you can get them involved in the, like, of the launch party, you know, you can get them involved with everything after that while you're in operations as well and, 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 yeah. and really provide these like capitals, like I was saying, like uh, from, from, from your residents to local residents and, and vice versa.
0: I can see some of the placemaking skills coming to coming handy here. <laughs> Just kind of like the bottom-up approach of like not saying what the neighborhood needs, but actually asking them and inviting them to co-create it with you. I think that could be really strong.
1: Yeah, so, so a lot of these like participation spectrums and ladders do come from that kind of uh, engagement mm-hmm. or do come from placemaking.
0: So I wanted to ask you, what do you think the post-corona co-living world is going to look like or did, did it affect your perspective this recent few months where everything got crazy
1: <laughs> yeah uh yeah i mean we've definitely been thinking about what what co-living will look like post-corona uh we also just released a a an edition of co-living insights which is our research lab or kind of research magazine and it was the second edition the first edition was at the end of last year and this edition was about is co-living here to stay so we we interviewed like over 20 different co-living operators investors architects developers asking them is is co-living here to stay so so luckily for us that most of them said yes <laughs> or all of all of them said yes. Mm-hmm. And then we also did a a cover story where we analyzed different meetups that were held by CoLiv, different kind of international global meetups that were held around the world by CoLiv's global ambassadors. And they were all recorded and they all had recaps. So we we analyzed those recaps and we did a bit of a, of a cover story based on those insights um, and we have like the top 10 key takeaways and there, there, there's some, yeah, there's some interesting stuff in those takeaways and mm-hmm. also just a lot of things that I was thinking about anyway. Um, and, and I think there's, there's this general consensus of the, the values that co-living has is, is here to stay and they'll, they'll be even stronger, yeah. especially the values around community and, and, and providing this, social environment for individuals moving into a city or for locals as well uh, but 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 yeah the need for this kind of social environment was definitely something that was yeah chal- like challenged but also I think confirmed during during the coronavirus during the lockdowns um, but even this element of convenience and that that co-living offers so even the element of being yeah having like very close customer service with the operator and having this like kind of trust-based relationship with the operator i think for people that was Mm -hmm. very important and they were able to get a lot of a lot of support from the operators themselves and 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 then also on the kind of more operational side with like cleaning and with bulk getting bulk foods and, and getting bulk products like cleaning products things like that like that convenient factor Played in really strongly during the during the confinement during the lockdowns, and I think it, it was it was something that will create a, quite a bit of like yeah this brand loyalty around co- certain co living brands, but also around co living as a, as a whole. Um, so so I think both those aspects are really positive for the co living sector, and. I do think though that the, the there will need to be different like spatial design features, uh, the, the social distancing, all that kind of stuff will have to be taken into consideration. Mm-hmm. Different kinds of health and safety measures, hygiene measures will obviously have to be taken into consideration, uh, just like any other kind of hosp- uh, uh, hospital or hotel or, or, or office space, you know.
0: Mm-hmm. When you have shared spaces, of course, you yeah. have to have higher standards of hygiene, but then like the social. Value just the fact that you can live in a community and not be by yourself if there is another lockdown or something like this. Uh, at the moment, now in Israel, we might be facing a second lockdown uh, probably next week.
1: Oh, next week? Oh, no. Um,
0: okay. Yeah. So people are like really trying to organize themselves. They just like so many people have moved around. Um, most of them left the city uh, to be closer to nature. You can see higher demand for apartments that has a balcony or rooftop or a garden. People just really crave the outdoors, and each other's company. People want to rent places together and just mm. co-live. So I hope it's not going to happen, <laughs> but we might be facing it.
1: Oh no! Okay, yeah, I think I think in France it, it, it might be the same, but I'm not sure when. August, September is what they're saying um but yeah i think i think those like spatial design features you're talking about as well are are quite important having green spaces within the co-living spaces uh having these outdoor terraces and 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 even having uh co-working spaces has been quite a a a big selling factor for Mm -hmm. co-living especially since we're all doing this like work from home
0: yeah
1: and remote working and and not having like the appropriate space but having that in the clothing space where it's already designed correctly and you already have the, the Wi-Fi, you may have like specific breakout rooms for, for private calls, that kind of thing. I think that was a big selling point um, as well.
0: I think it's so interesting to see how the whole world has suddenly shifted into working from home, which was probably like before it was more of a nomad thing, right? Yeah, and then yeah. suddenly all of the digital nomads are like the experts in how to work yeah. from strange places. And you can see the way that it's liberating people. Like suddenly you have the freedom to move. So then when work is no longer attached to a place, where do I choose to live and how? Yeah. Which yeah. is one of the biggest questions that billions of people are facing nowadays.
1: Mm. It's mm. really interesting. Yeah, it's, what I, it's, what I've heard, it's what I've heard a few people call like li- liquid, liquid territories. Okay. Like the evolution of liquid territories and having this yeah this proximity between rural peri-urban urban and and how those different locations and geographies communicate with one another, and how people will move mm-hmm. between those territories in a more of a liquid form you know in a more of a i guess free-flowing form
0: yeah mm-hmm. i'll have to wait and see <laughs> um okay so we're almost coming to an end and i want to ask you how was it for you
1: yeah it was it was really great yeah i i I think it was quite interesting because you sort of dissected my professional and personal life in the last few years uh, in a way that mm. <laughs> in a way that I think only like my close friends or family could do. So I, I thought that was quite interesting.
0: Oh, wow. Thank you. That's a huge compliment. <laughs> I really appreciate it. Um, so where can we learn more about what you do and connect you to you? I'm going to share links to the Conscious Code Living website. Um, anywhere else we should be following?
1: Cool. Yeah. Thank you. So yeah, the Conscious Co-Living website, um, the Co-Living Insights as well, is could be a huge resource for a lot of your audience. And Co-Live is also a great resource for a lot of our, our audience. Uh, your audience. Sorry. Mm-hmm. Um, especially the Co-Living enthusiasts. It's ours now. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah <laughs> for sure. Um. Okay. Yeah. And I think those are those are the the top three places to to look to look out for. I would say, and li- LinkedIn mm-hmm. as well. If you want to share my LinkedIn. Okay,
0: I'm going to share all the links um, right in the description of the episode. Um, So before we go, I have uh, one last question. Uh, This is a question that I ask all of my guests, and it's called the wild napkin. All right?
1: (laughs) The the wild wild, what? Sorry. Napkin. Okay,
0: cool. The wild napkin. Okay, (laughs) so I need you to be like, try to be very open-minded. Yeah, yeah. So you're going to a bar. And uh, there's no lockdown, you can go to a bar and uh, you have a couple of drinks or your mind is very, very free. And all of a sudden you have the craziest idea and you take a napkin, you write it down. And let's say the next day you found it in your bag. What does it say? Uh, So there is no time or money limitations. It could be pretty much anything.
1: I mean, the first thing that came up was something quite simple, but it just says "love everyone," mm-hmm. and I think that's that's kind of what we all what we all need these days is more more self love, mm-hmm. more kind of like intimacy with self, but also more intimacy and love of others and of more connection to nature, and and re- rediscovering and sort of rewiring ourselves for for love rather than for criticism and, and judge judging and um, a lot of these kinds of reactions that we have, these, these, like, it, these fight or flight reactions that we often have, um, especially when things like COVID happen. And, um,
0: mm-hmm. Well, I think this is one of the most beautiful answers I received to this question. Thank you for sharing.
1: <laughs> cool, thank you.
0: And I wanna thank you again for taking the time and being my guest and I want to thank our listeners Um, I love it keep sending me emails and messages your feedback is really important to me and um, till the next time go out and talk to strangers (laughs) thank you Adi (laughs) (laughs) Bye. bye